Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, I'm your Marketers in Motion podcast host, Josh Janoviak. Our topic today is entrepreneurial marketing. Today, staying agile and keeping an entrepreneurial mindset, regardless of business size, age, or industry, is proving to be essential. As competition tightens and industries continue to evolve and change, it's questions like these that are keeping us up at night. How do you market a new business with little or no budget? What strategies, tools, and tactics do you use and why? When should you hire out marketing versus what can and should you and your team do in-house? How much should you invest in marketing and how do you know when and where to invest your budget? This was the topic of a recent panel discussion held with four West Michigan entrepreneurs. During the panel, we discussed how these entrepreneurs launch their businesses while providing lessons learned, insights, and tools that all marketers can use on the job today. Since the panel was held in a Q&A format with a moderator, we thought it best to record the panel discussion for rebroadcasting on today's podcast. I'll turn it over to our panel moderator, Rebecca Dutcher, AMA West Michigan president-elect and an entrepreneur herself who launched Red 66 Marketing in 2016. All right, I'd like to introduce our panelists. I'll tell you a little bit about them and then we'll hear more of their stories because as we know, as marketers and entrepreneurs, our stories matter. First, we'll start with John Dodge. He is the Executive Vice President of Freshwater Digital. All of you AMA members, no relation to Jason Dodge. He has well over 15 years of digital marketing and entrepreneurial experiences in paving new industry opportunities. He's co-founded successful startup companies, including one of the first online food ordering platforms. Can't wait to hear about that. Served on a board of directors at his alma mater, Michigan State University. Go Green. Consulted for several large web publishers, led the creation of the digital advertising department at Meyer, and managed digital strategy for Jack Morton Worldwide. As I mentioned, he's currently the Executive Vice President for Freshwater Digital, a nine-year-old company in which he is a partner and joined as employee number two. Next, we have Chris Ake. He is the co-founder and operating partner of Grand Apps, and as you'll learn, several other companies. He founded Grand Apps in 2011 as a mobile app development company. The company's reach began locally here in Grand Rapids, but soon expanded its mobile marketing services and began serving clients globally. As Chris grew his company over the past several years, he began investing and launching more businesses. Currently, he owns six companies, four are service-based companies, and two are investments. Entrepreneurship and building companies are his passion, and he's constantly sharing his journey. If you're connected with him on LinkedIn, you've probably heard some of his stories. Next, we have Eric Lachey. He is the founder of Carbon Stories. Eric is a young entrepreneur. He founded Carbon Stories, a Michigan-based creative agency, in 2015 at the age of 19. Carbon tells its clients stories and shares experiences through numerous media forms, including photography, videography, graphic design, and print media. Since the start, Carbon has traveled around the world telling stories and sharing experiences. Eric's motto is create daily. Next, we have Karen Scarpino. Karen is president and owner of Green Gifts and Promotional Impact, certified women-owned business. Green Gifts is a high-design and eco-friendly branded merchandise company serving clients like Steelcase, Herman Miller, Hayworth, Styles, Chrysler, and more. It's another way to go green. She's a member of the Chamber of Commerce CEO Roundtables, a recipient of the Grand Rapids Business Journal Top Woman-Owned Business, and a West Michigan Women Brilliance Award Entrepreneur Award winner. Karen has mentored students at GVSU. Woohoo! and presented to the Michigan Diversity Council on onboarding and employee retention through successful branded merchandise programs. So we have a lot of questions that we've prepared ahead of time. Please feel free to raise your hand and ask questions if you have those burning questions that you just need to share with us, please. First, I want to 
ask you all to share a little bit about your, your business journey. If these were your first business ventures or what was your first one, how did you get started? Did you go it alone? And how did that go? Thank you for having me here today. Uh, just so you know, uh, the way our business started, I was a the first female vice president at uh, Grand Rapids' oldest ad agency, 50-year-old firm, uh, by the age of 25, and loved it. That was my dream job. And meanwhile, uh, my husband had a job, but on the side, we started this business and we started it little by little, knowing that um, we wanted to, to be entrepreneurs. But this was so long ago, guys. Being an entrepreneur was not cool. No parents were proud of that at all. <laughs> Working from your home was like next to, this close to failure. Uh, but and, and if I followed my ego, I would have stayed with the firm I was at. I loved corporate America. I loved playing those games. I loved going on New York media tours. I had clients in North Carolina. I traveled. But I became a mom. And uh, as much as I thought my career really mattered to me, my kids mattered more. And so uh, we went all in on the business, no, no salary, no, no benefits. Uh, it was just my husband and I. And, you know, at that point, you can't fail. Failure is not an option. And um, so we were, we were all in. So I guess when it comes to the question of funding and that kind of thing, we we grew organically. We just lived like poor people. We had one car for two people that was paid for, and uh, we were just super careful. Thank you for having me as well. Um, for me, Carbon Stories was not my first uh, business venture. When I was 11, I started a business called Young Entrepreneurs, and we did a neighborhood newsletter and also did uh, lawn mowing. It was uh, pretty fun. Um, I did a lemonade stand as well, but spelled lemonade wrong. It was Leo Minad. Um, still haven't learned to spell very well. But um, when I was 19, I was getting a lot of just personal projects from people at church or people at school asking for photo, video, or graphic design work. And they were paying me in McDonald's gift cards. And me being a Wendy's kind of guy, I knew that it just wasn't going to work out <laughs> that way. So I knew I needed to have more structure around it. And I had a few friends who were doing the same thing. And so uh, my dad being an entrepreneur and then just me with the previous business I had, I knew that I wanted to have more structure with it, and in order to scale, it'd have to have process and an actual plan. Um, didn't get any funding or anything. I just had a camera that I purchased from other shoots that I was doing using the school's camera. I went to Forest Hills Northern. I'll go Huskies. Um, and I was also at uh, LCC at the time, Lansing Community College, and going into Michigan State. But um, as we, we started, we met um, down at Blue 35 for our first meeting. I'm like, guys, hopefully we'll have a project or something this summer. This was back in 2015, and then a week later, we got a call from Spectrum Health to do a video for them, and so it was really cool having that be our first project, but continued to just grow from there, but that was the start. Well, good afternoon. Uh, thank you guys all for coming out. It's a great panel. Yeah, so Grand Apps 2011 is when we first started, and I actually started out of Grand Valley's computer campus before they built this magnificent building. I was over there, and... Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. Um, I actually don't know where my college diploma's at, but I do know where this article is that got me on this journey, and uh, it was a TechCrunch article. So my first business that I started was in college, and it was called Unbubble. And that's back when Groupon was in the Daily Deal site. Um, it, was, it was huge, right? A, a phenomenon that swept across the country, and I read this article from TechCrunch about this guy who's going to make a billion-dollar industry from online coupons. And I was a super lagger. I didn't use Blackboard. I had a BlackBerry. Um, funny story, when I launched Grand Apps, I was at client meetings, and I'd pull up my phone, right? And I'd sit it there, and they go, you know, so, so son, let me, let me ask you this question. You're trying to pitch me an iPhone and an Android app, and you have a BlackBerry? And uh, that's, that's when I got my first Android. And then now iPhone. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was the first one. And uh, we launched that in my senior year of college. I was doing about 30 hours in the weekend as a waiter. I was doing 15 credits, and I was cold calling in between classes to get deals for another company, Manly Deal, that we we're going to launch in 2012 of January. My partner in that and my mentor said, hey, what about mobile apps? And this was November of 2011, three years after the App Store launched. And I said, you're the smart guy. I'm the young guy. I'll work hard. Let's do it. So uh, we've been running and building grand apps ever since. 
Uh, I'm John Dodge. Um, I've been a part of about four startup companies, actually four legitimate companies before I was selling, you know, pet rocks and consolidated notes in school and all those things that kind of got me down the track of being an entrepreneur. Uh, but my first uh, legitimate business was my senior year in, at Michigan State University. Uh, we started a, a, an online food ordering platform. That was a time when uh, we weren't even sure if that was a concept people would embrace. Uh, the focus was on college students, and we uh, successfully launched it at Michigan State. From there, went through the VC rounds, raised capital, brought the business to about uh, 70 universities, turned down uh, partnerships with companies like Grubhub, uh, made some mistakes along the way. Uh, so I will, I will be referencing some of the mistakes uh, because that's where a lot of the learning came from. Uh, from there, I have gone on to work in several other projects. Um, now with Freshwater Digital, we're uh, approaching our 10th year. Um, I was a part of it as a startup business, and now I would consider ourselves to be a second stage business. So happy to answer any questions around that. Well, let's start a little bit uh, um, talking about some of the failures and lessons learned. Um, I know their failure is not an option, but it's funny. I've been a part of a fail fest-esque thing when I lived in Indiana, um, failure lab, but no, nope, that was fail fest. See, there we go. Um, anyway, where all of the entrepreneurs and leaders and those that were leading the VC firms that spoke all were entrepreneurs as children. And so that's just a common theme that I see here as well. So I'd love to hear about maybe your biggest perceived failure or what launched you into your next the next level for your business. So I'll elaborate on the, the, the simple dime business. Um, I, it's, it's tough because failure always isn't black and white. We were in a position, we were 20, 21, 22 years old, uh, trying to raise capital, and only so many people at that time, again, entrepreneurship was not cool. It was tough to convince my parents that as a senior in college, I wasn't going out and starting internships and looking for jobs and that I was just heads down on a project as they saw it. Um, so when you come across a group of individuals that are willing to listen to you and willing to consider giving you capital to grow your business, you're going to do it on their terms. And sometimes their terms aren't what's best for the business. But as 20-something-year-old kids, uh, it's really tough for us to say, no, that's not right for our business and turn down millions of dollars. So inevitably, we took capital. I was telling Chris the story earlier. We took capital where we knew the milestones weren't right for the business, but it was our chance to either dissolve the business into nothing or actually have a chance of growing the business. So um, I would see that as being a failure. Uh, the, the group of individuals that invested us were the Grand Angels of Grand Rapids. Um, if, I don't know if you've got, many, many of you have probably heard of the group. We we're actually their first investment. They were trying to figure it out as a group how to organize themselves uh, as well as how do, they, uh, how do they instill money into these businesses and make them run. So that's, that's one instance of a failure where you feel like you've got to take the wrong approach just to get off the ground. One failure that I had that a lot of people, I guess, don't know about, and I don't um, have it in my description or anything really, is I used to own a flooring company from 2015 to 2017, and it's still in business now. It's called Floor It, and that's like, like actual installation of floors, carpeting, hardwood. And uh, the way I kind of got into that business was I met the partner and the owner of it probably about seven years ago, and he was doing sales for a local branding company. He met me, and he's like, we need to partner with you guys because we need mobile apps. And I met their ownership group, and we didn't strike up a partnership. It is what it is. He went on and did his own thing. I didn't connect with them until about five years later, and uh, I'm a natural-born salesman, so when I see him change his LinkedIn to owner of this company, I looked, and I go, well, I see you don't have a website. He's like, no, and I'm like, well, you know, since we last talked, we could do websites now. So we had lunch, and I sold him a website. And uh, then the next year, I became partners of that business. Now, it was a failure because I'm not in it anymore. And I think that what happened was, I, as we were growing Grand Apps, we were only, I think, four years into it, right? And it's my first actual real business, building it and learning from startup to management to growth. And we're kind of in that similar stage where we're not startup, we're kind of the second level. Um, we have about 20 employees total amongst the different brands that we have in our company. And uh, I was spread out too thin and I was unfocused. And also the, the partner that I had, we didn't see eye to eye, right? And I think that as you launch and build and uh, grow your businesses, looking for those right partners who you truly align with and you have that same vision and don't get into a partnership just because it's a really good opportunity. 
for me, I was kind of blinded by that because I had so many connections and I saw all these skyscrapers going up in our city and I go, there's a massive opportunity. I think I could help in a certain way, right? And I know some of the people, but me, me and the partners didn't seem eye to eye, right? And that, and that drained so much away from me. And I'll wrap this up real quick. The way I knew to get out of it was I went to Grand Haven by myself. I sat on a sand dune. I was really conflicted what to do. The sun was setting and I pictured my life without the flooring company. I pictured my life without Grand Apps. I got really sad without Grand Apps. Maybe because I'm emotionally attached because I built it. My phone did not get service at Grand Haven. Soon as I got in my car, I got service. We received a contact form from the Dallas Cowboys looking for a quote to get an app built. That was a sign nice. I thought, right? Like yeah. the most known sports team in the world. Like, um, so, so that was a failure. And, and I guess that's you know, my uh, insight behind that one. For me, I would say the... Uh failure that I've got right now that I learned from was was Michigan State. Before, that was my only goal was to be at Michigan State. I thought I wanted to go there and get a degree and then go work for an ad agency or something. Um, but I, uh, I dropped out and my GPA is like a 1.9 there right now. So it's a failure definitely in my life. I do plan to at some point be able to go back and finish because I've got student loans that I'm paying that I should probably have a degree for. But um, it was just something to where it was similar, where it was like make the decision whether I continue to build the company or I continue to get my degree. Uh, at the time we had, this was in uh, October of 2016, we had an option to uh, have a building over here on the west side. And so that's where our office is now. Um, and I remember like when we, I was signing the lease um, for it, we at the same time, like I had class the next day that I had to drive down to Lansing for. So I was going back and forth and then having to decide whether or not I'd take a client meeting or a shoot uh, or be here in Grand Rapids doing work. So for me, it was something that I really thought I wanted to do. And both my parents went to Michigan State. Uh, but as of right now, it is on hold because I had to build the business and continue to grow. So one day, I'm sure I will finish. But I would say for me, that is a, a failure that I had to learn from. I can live with myself trying something and failing. I can't live with myself knowing I can do something and not even trying. So to me, it's, I think my threshold for failure is different. I, I think that if you're trying new things, you're a pioneer and you're putting your neck on the line and you're going to run into stumbling, stumbling blocks and uh, you're going to learn from them. So I look at that as learning lessons, not really failures. I guess I'm, I'm old school. I'm not easy to, to admit failures, but really, you just you just you're just aware that mistakes are going to happen. And with our clients, if it's something very big and we're doing we're really pioneering, we're innovating something new. We create a prototype and agree together on what we're doing so that it's not totally on us. And there have been a few times where we've prototyped something and a client has backed out, and that prototype has been like. Five other clients will see it and go, that's the most awesome thing I've ever seen. So what was a failure for one client was a true win for others. So when you guys were starting out, what was the first thing you did to, to market your business or what form, what form of marketing or channel outside of word of mouth and your parents' friends? <laughs> did you start to invest in that worked for you? For Carbon, it was just knocking on doors, handing out business cards. We honestly just walked into random buildings um, right next to Hopcat. There was a door that was open, like literally it was unlocked. So we walked in and we went to the third floor and we handed out a business card and said, if ever you need videos, let us know. And then she's like, we actually need videos. So can you meet tomorrow? Um, the Spectrum Health Project we got because our marketing director walked across the hall while we were at Blue 35 and handed them a business card and said, if ever you need a video, let us know. Um, they said, we'll never need a video because we don't do that often. But then they ended up calling for one. Uh, so for us, uh, it was just a lot of knocking on doors, cold emails. Uh, for some people, it was like, oh, they could use a video, so we'll go to their restaurant or store, whatever it is, uh, make a short 30-second, like, look at this, we enjoy your product or whatever it is, and then they want more of that. So um, a lot of just, like, going to go knock on the doors. Yeah, I'd say to add that, any tactic you could possibly think about, I feel like I have tried. <laughs> um, one tactic that we did was uh, uh, John and I were talking about the early roots of Grand Apps and where we started. And where we started was we licensed this platform that was the first ever in California. So for us, what we did was we just almost gave away our product for free, like literally dirt cheap and just to kind of flood the market. So people will see and use 
you know, what app could be, how it could be, and they'll go, hey, that's really awesome. Uh, Joe, where'd you get that done? Oh, Grand Apps, right? So that, that was one tactic that we did. Um, if you could do that, right? And, and it worked really well for us, but we had the same. We did, I did, a, personally, 100 cold calls a day, legit, um, back when we started, and everything, emails, calls, um, yeah, there's more advanced ways to, to market yourself, but those are some of the early ones. When you're starting a company, you have no idea what the cost of acquisition is for a customer. I mean, it is just a crapshoot. Uh, it could be $100, it could be 50 cents, um, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so there's a lot of exper experimentation that goes into it. A uh, lot of multi-channel, a lot of word of mouth, a lot of PR. I mean, I will probably take the pictures that she's taking right now and put them on Facebook later. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different things that you do. Um, with some of the earlier businesses, it was about word of mouth. There was, like this, it's, there's, it was a little bit before social media, but we did influencer programs where we would have uh, kids that were involved in fraternities and sororities handing out flyers, throwing a massive party at a, an exclusive club that you couldn't get into on a Thursday night, but we rented it out for a Thursday night, throw a special party, um, all the way to flyers and promotions and sweepstakes. Um, as things kind of progressed, there's better tools out there like search engine marketing where we can, we can actually look at what is the cost per click? What is the cost per lead? How many of those leads are then uh, converted into a sale? Therefore, you can kind of reverse engineer what you're spending to identify that cost per acquisition. It's not always consistent. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing learning process. I mean, even the biggest companies in the world like Coca-Cola are still trying to figure out how to leverage a lot of these channels. They are a lot further along with the analytics than a lot of small companies that are starting out. But... Uh, these same exact approaches are being done just at a different scale. When you're starting out, you really don't have a budget. It's not like you get hired and you have a title and a budget. It's it's really a matter of are you going to be able to pay yourself anything or not. So when it, when it comes right down to it, without a budget, your network is your net worth. And so when we started our business, uh, I previously worked at an agency, Herman Miller was our largest account. It wasn't a conflict of interest. I basically just called the same people I worked with and said, here's what I do now. And they said, great, come out and see us. And they didn't want to just be sold a, a product. They saw us as a real strategic partner. And so we started coming up with really custom solutions for them. And it grew by referral. So when you do a fabulous job for a client and the referrals are, that's like an awesome way to gain business where your barriers of resistance have been brought down because they're like, hey, you already did a great job for this client. And if you can go right to, you know, Herman Miller's and, you know, some of the leaders in the industry and, and have some experience with them, then you're, when you tell your brand story, it, it goes I was, I was just going to elaborate on the referral piece because that's that's something that's been very valuable for us as well in, uh, in, in Freshwater, where we do a really nice project for a client, and then we ask if we can create a video that talks about that that you know that execution. Uh, a lot of times, not only is that valuable for us so that we can share it and show off the awesome work that we did, uh, but it gives them a chance to talk about it and makes them look good in their own, own organization so they can share that around internally and say, hey, look what I did with the, with my budget. Um, Additionally, also gives them an asset that they can share. So uh, not only leveraging the great work and everything great that the client has to say about you, but giving them something tangible that they can share. I want to add to that. Um, one thing that I thought about, what the referral, right, um, from a sales standpoint, from an objection, why should we use your company, right? What case studies you have? What do you have? What could you show me? And some things sometimes that I tell people, I say, listen, if we didn't do great work to start, we would not be in business. Because when you first start, word of mouth marketing is how you build your base of clients. So that shows that you are a good company, right? Especially being the service-based business that we're all in. That's what I tell people sometimes too from like a, like a sales objection standpoint. Because it, it's absolutely right. Like if you do a bad job, you're not going to be in business, period. And you guys were, you were starting to touch on it there. But, you know, you build a lot of trust with your first customers early on. And they probably counted on you for a lot. Is there a time when you had to tell them no or that you really had to reevaluate your product or service offerings? And how do you guide that going forward? I tell clients no all the time. They're like, hey, Chris, I got this great app idea. I want to build this mobile app. I'm like, listen, Susan, like, you probably need a website first before you put the app out to market. Um, or if, uh, 
they, they have an app, right, and they want to go a certain direction, maybe they need marketing, right? So I tell people no all the time, and based on what I'm getting and, and where the market's at with our uh, different divisions, then we'll kind of add different products and services based on what we think, where it's going to go, what we can do, um, what are capabilities. But yeah, I tell people no all the time. For us, uh, where we really win with our projects is with relationships with our clients. So Start Garden, for example, we've been doing all of their content for the last two years. And at, throughout those two years, uh, the social media content we've been producing it has changed. Like Instagram stories wasn't even a thing two years ago. And so for us, um, a lot of clients will come to us and see our website or they'll see what we've done for other people. And they're basically just asking us to do similar things. There are sometimes it'll be something new, like, uh, closed captioning on a live broadcast um, or like a live stream on Facebook, but we will take those and like learn how to do that because some of those things are being added to our field. Uh, but if it's if it does get too extensive, like we had a client last summer that was asking for us to help develop brand message, and as much as we wanted to help with that, we knew that for us it's just more of like we can help once you have that brand message, then share that. So we'll try to like figure out where we provide the the most value. But there has been, like, a few projects where, like, we do websites, but we only use Squarespace. So we can't do anything that has custom code or has uh, a lot of design elements to it. Um, there are times that we'll get started on the project, but then realize throughout it that it's like, oh, no, this isn't something that, you know, we'll be able to continue to move forward with. But honestly, uh, even transparently for us, whenever that does happen, we just give back the 50% deposit. And we always let people keep the work that we have done because it's like uh, we don't think Either of us knew that it wasn't going to be able to be there. You thought, based on what you've seen us do before, we'd be able to do that. And we thought, based on what we can, we can produce that, whether that be a project that's gone a different way um, or it'd be something that we didn't know how to do. But for most of the things, uh, we, we're continuing to learn and grow. Uh, where we are now, when we first started out, we were still burning DVDs for videos. And then now, I don't think we've, we haven't made a DVD in like a year. But I remember the first year, we were like, almost every video because it ended up playing at an event or people wanted to have it later on, we'd have to put on a DVD or, or something afterwards. So it's been like growing and different services end up getting provided for the outlets that the media gets used for. I absolutely hate saying no. I try to exhaust every reason why I should say yes. Um, but that's, that goes back to some of the mistakes that you make earlier on when you're an entrepreneur is trying to say yes too many times because either you're kind of going outside your core. It's important to know your core stick to your core. Uh, but at the same time, when you're sticking to your core, you have to kind of keep an eye on the horizon of how things are going to change and do you need to be there as part of your future core. Um, the other time you say no is when the strategy is wrong. So there's a lot of times you talk to a client where they're insistent on the direction that they need to go, but that direction you know is not the right direction. So it can be challenging to steer them in a different direction, say no to the project, um, but ultimately, they're hiring you as experts uh, in your field. So if you're, you know your core, you're an expert in your division, in your, in your field, um, being able to help direct a client, even if that means losing a sale or uh, bringing them to someone else who can do a better job, uh, that's, that's often the best approach. I rarely say no, if ever. Um, we are blessed to have a lot of great clients, global branding managers at billion-dollar corporations, and if they have... What, what we do really well is listen because a lot of times you go in to service need A and they'll go on and on with a pain point and it might be service B. It might not be your number one greatest area that you're an expert in. But hey, if they see me as a trusted source, as a turnkey solution to all of their problems, I am going to be that solution to their problems. And... So they've come to us with some crazy, crazy requests. For example, oh, our product's being seen as too complicated, but it's really simple. If only we had a Tinker Toy set that replicated our exact furniture system and how it's assembled, I think that our sales reps could do a better job selling it. Well, guess what? A Tinker Toy set that replicated their product did not exist. But I just listened to them. I'm like, if that's what's going to work for you, we can do it. You're just going to have to invest X amount and give us a little more time to make this thing. And that sent us down the road of, of creating custom one-of-a-kind solutions that took us to, uh, next thing you know, Bissell was trying to add uh, an accessory to one of their top-selling steam cleaners. And they're like, 
who do we go to? And they're like, oh, you have to have to call Green Gifts. And we created, uh, we were competing against New York firms, Detroit firms. We came up with a custom product design and won the bid. And we, it was, we had a SKU item at Bissell that was just constantly reordered for, the, for years, got us through, you know, down economies and the whole bit. So to me, I think when people say, oh, that's not my core competency, it's like, hey, guess what? We all constantly learn. And if your client base needs it and they're asking you because they don't know where else to go, I find a way to make it happen. As business owners and leaders, how do you stay on top and um, on top of trends like in your industry and make sure that you are doing those best practices and taking things a step further? So we talked about Instagram stories and how you've evolved there. How do you stay educated and fresh in your industry specifically? For my industry, it is social media. Um, I want to say probably now 95% of the media we make is going to get shared on social, even if it is a video that's playing at an event or photos that we're taking for something, they later will be shared there. So for us uh, and our team, it's a lot of staying up on what's happening in social um, because like, that's what we've been using uh, for what we create to be shared. A lot of, but at the same time, um, also trying to anticipate what can do better. Um, is it better to post more than one photo at one time on an Instagram story? Or when Instagram allowed you to start posting multiple things, like should it be video and then photos or should it all be video? So kind of like testing out, seeing what the industry leaders are doing, um, and then watching a lot of YouTube videos. There's a lot of good uh, examples that other people and a lot of the large people, industry leaders, um, for whatever field, they'll go make a tutorial video or they'll say a uh, this is something that I've learned, and so we'll go watch that and then apply it for the different clients that we have throughout the industries. Anyone in particular that we should follow? Uh, it all depends on what you're interested Him. in following. <laughs> <Follow> <laughs> Promote yourself, man. <laughs> well, Carbon Stories, yeah, we do like to share. Um, like, we did an iPhone photography meetup yesterday, and I think there were like seven of us total, and we were just shooting photos on the iPhone, and a lot of people have iPhones. Um, no shade on Android. They have great cameras as well. But um, with the iPhone, you can shoot some really quality media, and it's best to be able to shoot consistent quality media. So um, we're editing them all on our, our phones and things. But um, it depends on the industry. Peter McKinnon is a great uh, photographer and videographer that we follow on YouTube. He'll do like a tutorial of a new camera coming out or some new transition he's learned. Um, but yeah, if you ask me like specifically who from your field, I may know someone that like is on YouTube or on social media that could help. You know, besides the obvious of different industry publications for your specific industry or trade shows for your industry, um, for us, digital signage is about the technology. So we buy a lot of toys um, and we tinker with them. So even like the things that you're seeing on a lot of the tables here, we have e-ink tabs. Um, just seeing what the newest technology is, playing with it, a lot of times we'll realize that it's not going to be something that's going to take off in our particular field. but. Um, in some cases, it does. We're also fortunate enough to have a client that pays us to do R&D for them. So not only are we trying to seek out the technology, they're seeking out the technology. And then they're paying us to buy it and paying us to play with it and report on it. So it gives us a little bit of an advantage because we take what we learn from one client um, without you know, disclosing some of the learnings, but then can apply that to other clients in particular areas. So um, it's kind of hard to speak to it abstractly, but we have a media lab where we have all of our different technology Anytime we have a new client, we bring them into our media lab so we can demonstrate all the newest technology, show us and show them how it works. I see we had a question. How many employees do you have and how do you deal with challenges you face when you manage your employees? All right, so that, that is a really, really, really relevant, awesome, amazing question. And that's something that we talked about like 15 minutes before the event started. Crazy enough. Um, you know, I think that people don't talk about that topic enough. So how many employees, at least I have, and everybody can kind of touch on it. So amongst our, um, our different brands that we have, we got about 20, uh, whether that's, whether that majority are W-2, some are 1099, some are interns, right? Um, so about 20. And here's the crazy thing. You start a business, and you're growing it, you're building it, and you're just go, go, go. And if you're like me or John, you're a typical entrepreneur, right? And uh, one thing that I really, really struggled with was becoming a good manager. I was an awful manager to start when I started hiring people because I went the typical mindset of, hey, we're getting busy. All right, I'm going to hire you to do something. Do it. And then 
as we're having a conversation, expectations are ridiculously high because as an entrepreneur, I think you put high expectations on yourself. Usually that's your personality type. You want to do better. You want to try more. You also own the company, right? So, you know, you have that emotional value and you're vested into it. And you think that everybody coming along the journey is going to have that same vested interest. They're not. And we know that now. Um, so it was a hard transition to manage 20 different people, uh, let alone to manage four or five. And, and I think that if you're going to run and start a small business as an entrepreneur, just know that going into it. So, so know two things about yourself. Do you want to be a manager? Do you like coaching people? I didn't want to be a manager at the time. I like it now. I enjoy it. Uh, people ask me to coach them all the time. I'm not at a point in my life to coach people. I tell them no. Um, I guess I say no a lot, apparently. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so you have to know that going into it, understand that. And if you know you're not, the first couple key hires, hire people who are really good managers, who can build up teams and manage, and they want to, right? So uh, I'll let you touch on that and add to it. But yeah, that's, that's a, I think more people should talk about that transition. Freshwater right now has about 18 full-time employees. My, my first company had about 180 of which were, were interns. We took a different approach where we would hire interns to sell on the campuses, fly them out to San Diego, show them to a really nice weekend, train them on how to sell, send them back to their campuses, get about three to four good weeks of sales out of them to help grow all the different restaurants and, uh, and build up the business. Uh, but like we were talking about earlier, it was like you can hire cheap, and quantity, and you ultimately have a lot of turnover and people that aren't invested in your business. Um, but even when you do hire quality hires, you have the challenge of why, is, why are some people not as vested as I am? Well, no one's going to be as vested as the people that have ownership stake in the business. So a lot of times we look at different ways to, uh, to motivate and to uh, have those people become more vested, become part of the family with, with ownership stakes and um, different incentives to do that. So it, 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 it's going to vary significantly. Yeah, for Carbon, um, we right now we have 10 creators that are all 1099 contractors. Um, but as we grow, like our plan is to have everybody as an employee. But we're similar to a startup in the sense of we're still growing. But uh, I've had the same experience where there was we've had like 30 different people be a creator or have that title at some time. And uh, a lot of it was the, like, how much are they going to be invested in something that um, one day the whole vision for it may not be what they want. Someone might be more specific and say, I like shooting concerts, but I don't want to be shooting for an event recap. Um, so it's kind of like figuring that out. And through the process, like the question I always ask someone who will end up now, it's an internship program that they have to go through to become a creator. But um, the question that we always ask is, what can Carbon do for you? How can we help you reach your goal, whether that be you want to have the coolest camera equipment or that, the experience to be able to shoot with industry standard stuff, or you want to buy a new car, um, or you just want a lot of money. Like, what is it that Carbon can do to help you? And then from there, we work our way back. And we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings in the company to where, uh, of course, me with each creator, but then also each creator amongst each other, they talk about like, hey, when we're communicating, we've got to do a better job at this. And of course, we can't alleviate all problems. Um, we were just talking about it this morning in our team meeting. It's never going to be this euphoric place that's always perfect, but we can at least try to uh, be intentional about making it as comfortable and as productive as we can. But that is something that, you know, we learned over time, especially since everybody who's ever been a part of the company has been under 25. So a lot of people um, are living with their parents. Um, not anymore, but when we first started out, I think everybody lived with their parents. Um, and they were also still, like, figuring out what they wanted in life. They thought they yeah, like, I like photography this yeah. summer, but next summer I want to yep. be a magician or whatever that might be. <laughs> um, now, Did since... No, no, I was a magician. I don't know why I thought magician. It was a magician. But since uh, September of last year, we've had our set 10, and it's been really cool to have this group that we're, we're meeting every week uh, to discuss all the projects that are being worked on. Of course, some of them have some side projects that they're doing, but majority of all of their work is coming from Carbon. And as we continue to grow, they'll be hired on as employees, and we'll continue to provide more uh, value for the creators as we provide value for our clients. Well, I guess my question is for you. Um, <laughs> So how do you feel about your team members having other side projects? Because I know, I know some, some people say, well, they got to sign NDAs and non-competes, and we're going to control them. How do you feel about that? What, what's your take? So we don't have them sign NDAs or non-competes. It's not very scalable, what we do right now, but it works very well for the company. It's, 
it's very much built off of relationship. Like we know who's in for the team and who's not. You can feel when someone's drifting. You can feel when someone's not really feeling the like carbon vibes. I don't know how to describe that. But um, also at the same time, like people have respect for the company and they understand like this, uh, like we have a creator who graduated from Grand Valley last summer and her, she wanted to stay in Grand Rapids and wanted to be able to be creating content in the field. And this was her opportunity to do that. So all of them at this point have this respect for the company that wasn't, again, it wasn't always there. Um, definitely times in the past, I probably should have had people sign a non-competes, but I've always just been this kind of person who's like, if it works out, you know, it, it will. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, yeah, no non-competes. Because also at the same time, I never want their, let's say there's something uh, uh, just similar that they want to do that doesn't affect the business at all. But people are always at, at the company right now at least thinking, okay, is this benefiting carbon on a larger whole? Or um, is this something that I need to just do by myself? And for also for us, it's such a wide range. Um, right now, any project under $1,000, the creators are for sure just doing by themselves. Um, and again, I know that that's going to continue to change. But the type of content we create, it could be as simple as like, you need a senior photo shoot. Okay, if that's your friend that you grew up with or something like that has nothing really to do with carbon. So it, it can get very like, especially since we shoot in so many different industries, it could be very specific. So right now, yeah, we have no non-competes right now. What about you, Karen? I mean, okay. we have well, time for my answer. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, it's a little different because you, you have a lot of, you know, products and tangibles too. So your people and your process are a lot different. And I think that's a good, good thing to hear. Yeah. So uh, I am a passionate leader no matter what. Like I just, I believe you can exceed excellence every day. I think we learn and we're new and better people every day. And uh the people that work for me are the greatest assets that we have. I mean, they're awesome. And like to your question, you know, yeah, I love being the visionary leader and it's my employees that allow me to have the time to do that because they're doing things that I'm not great at, at lightning speed. You know, they're getting the actual work done behind the scenes, whereas I like to be out front creating and innovating. So um, we, I couldn't do it without them. And, you know, you talk about corporate culture, and you think that when you're a person of one, you don't have a culture. And so when I only had two or three people, I didn't think I had a culture. But I would hear them, I would hear the two others say, oh, well, that can't go out. That's not Karen-esque enough. And I love that term, Karen-esque. I'm like, I, I might want to trademark it. But what it meant was I did have a culture, and it was that, you know, the work they were doing had to be superb, or it didn't go out in front of the clients. And as a result, you know, and, and I'd love to keep the people I have forever, and I haven't been lucky enough to keep everybody forever, but um, I take pride in knowing the people who work for me. They're paying mortgage payments and car payments, and those that have left, uh, they work at Detroit Pistons, Hayworth, Kong. Anybody who's worked for me has gone and had awesome careers. So at first, early on, it was it was bitter. I was bitter to see somebody leave because you put so much training, so much time into that person. They're, they're really part of our family, to be honest. But then I had to look at it and say, oh, I helped this person reach their potential and grow the wings that they needed to move on to the next greatest thing in their life. And then I can look at that as anyone who leaves me, that's, they're going to leave being better than they were when they came. And um, but manager, I, I know I have so many ways I could improve uh, because I do, I think as leaders, we think that people are going to bust, but the way we do, and not everybody does. And then to, to the non-competes, I don't make people sign agreements because I'm not going to go sue them. So why do all the paperwork if I'm not going to sue mm -hmm. somebody? I, I, I really... Call me whatever you want. I'm trusting. I, I am trustworthy, and I trust others. And I have been burned in over the years, and I have to look at it as a compliment that people want to be like me, so they're going to try to copy me. But um, for the most part, we try to be very different, so it's not that easy for them. They probably can't be Karen-esque enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in you know, how you hire people, and, um, you know, we've, heard a lot about just growth and starting with uh, 1099 or interns. 
and filling that talent pipeline. But, you know, what hiring tips would you share with first-time managers or, you know, people that need to hire and add to their teams? How do you evaluate people and know they're going to be the one? I know for our industry um, and for a lot of the work that we do, it's not that difficult to teach how to operate a camera or how to shoot, especially when some of the stuff may be a training video or an internal communication video that's not even necessarily having to be stylized. Um, the harder things to teach are the caring about other people, being willing to learn how to communicate, uh, even if it's not beneficial for you to communicate that way. Um, it's been a lot more of the softer skills for us, at least. Like, And that's why we have the internship process, because before it was like, if you can shoot good photos or we liked your style, yeah, we'll have that conversation to have you on the team. But now the whole reason for our, it's just three months that we do. Um, and they're, they're still able to, it's unpaid right now, but they're still able to possibly make money if they end up like getting a project. Um, but the whole reason for doing that is to make sure that they fit well with the team and so that we can kind of see how they operate under pressure. Um, we get a lot of, and you'd be surprised, uh, but a lot of like last minute calls for shoots. Like last week we got a call at 11 p.m. I was in New York and the shoot was at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, the following morning. And it had a good budget and everything, and we were able to do that. But there are some people who don't like that last minute, like, hey, are you able to go tomorrow morning? Um, and so figuring out who's good for that. And we also know, like, not everybody's going to be perfect, but it's like, okay, this person can't handle pressure very well. So, like, these are the people who we can call for those type of situations. But this person prefers to have the, a lot of the details before. Um, so it's for us, it's just been a lot more, less on the skill side, more of on the, like, who they are as a person because I'll spend the hours to teach them how to be more professional or whatever that means because for us a lot of them this is their first time having a more like professional job um, I'll teach them how to do that I, but I, I can't teach them how to like, care about other people and want to even be a part of a team that's a very good question and I always ask HR people like do they have a crystal ball like how do you really know if somebody's gonna be a good hire a good fit and I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to that. Uh, early on, I used um, an employment service. I think that, you know, it's good to let them do what they're best at so you can do what you're best at. And I've, we've gotten incredible referrals that way. But, you know, nowadays Indeed makes it so easy to just place an ad. And we have found some really good people that way. And it's, it is tough to – we interview – for our culture, how well are they going to fit? Because we, the team members we have right now, we're solid, and you know the type of person that will not fit in is somebody that that isn't going to carry their weight and bust butt because we all do. And that's been my experience: is somebody that kind of loafs around, they just stand out like a sore thumb. So, you know, we we're really careful in the interview process. Uh, we we meet with people at least three times. Everybody in our firm interviews them, we get a general consensus. Sometimes we probably take so long that we lose our top pick because they get hired away because we, we take so long to commit. But the reason we do that is because it is like we're bringing somebody into our family and it's so important. And everything from, you know, when you mentioned soft skills, it's like how, how are they, you know, they might be great performance-wise, but they just don't come across very friendly. You know, what if they're the only one there and your client walks in and that's who they're working with and you're greeting them? I mean, every every little detail matters. And, you know, we're not the best at training. I think that would be something any small company would probably have to confess. It's like you don't have time to have, you know, we try to have formal manuals and formal procedures and to the extent we can, we do, but we can always improve on that. So. Karen, how many employees do you have? We have, we have 10. Kind of to expand on the, the cultural thing, um, one, one thing that we don't tolerate is brilliant jerks. So it doesn't matter if you are just 100% skilled at whatever you're doing and you're just incredible at it. If you don't mesh with the culture, you're going to bring everybody else down. So we don't tolerate it. Um, my second startup was with a company called Intelligent Hire. It was backed by CareerBuilder. And it was machine learning on... Uh, the database, Career Builders database, where we would take all the resumes and we would mine for certain aspects. And what was interesting about that is it really did a nice job of fulfilling on the skill side, but it, it, nothing on the personality side. And as a result, we saw that the concept couldn't take off because we weren't able to mine for the perfect employees. We were able to start with a good bank of people that you could start to interview, 
but you wouldn't get the perfect employee based off a resume alone. So the conversations that you have with people, uh, the cultural fit, how they resonate with you as a person, how they fit in with the team, um, it's a gut feel. And it's really tough because a lot of times you don't know how the hire is going to turn out. But as a small company, you can't afford to take somebody on for six months to a year to have them ultimately not work out. And that's going to happen, but it's a, it's a very tricky thing. How did you pick the name and the branding for your company? All right. First company, Simple Dine. Um, we wanted to make dining simple. Uh, apparently the name as well. Uh, we worked with, a, actually, we, we partnered, what, what, actually, an equity share. There's a company in town called Fusionary Media. And they were, a, they were our development arm. And they also did some of our initial branding. So they gave us some, some initial designs. And um, quite honestly, I don't think we spent a lot of time on the name. We were so excited about the concept that we started going down the path without a name for about three months. We're like, okay, we got to officially call this thing something. So from a marketing standpoint, we weren't there yet because it was all still behind the scenes, but uh, I would say not a lot of thought went into it. One thing for me, like one thing I know I hate doing, like we're talking <laughs> about services and adding, I hate like the branding meetings if I'm ever in them. It's like, well, what about this and the for like a startup, right? And I'm like, guys, no one even knows you exist. Like, like you're treating yourself like Coca-Cola and I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just a typical entrepreneur where it's like, no one knows, who cares, pick it, right? So our name, Grand Apps, I was on a, a phone call over on that campus, and Jake, my partner, uh, was like, oh, we got to call it something. Like, uh, what, well, I don't know. What about the Grand Apps? Whoa, Grand Rapids, and we're making apps, and they're grand as in they're grand, and they're grand as in a couple thousand, they're affordable. Yeah, Grand Apps, let's do it. <laughs> uh, if you go to our Facebook page and look at our time or our profile, and you go back, 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 our first logo was brutal. Um, it, it took us five years to get a new logo and get branding, and we don't even have we don't even have branding guidelines. And it drives some of my people nuts in my company. Like, we need branding guidelines. I'm like, well, we need to focus on the client stuff first. Like, we'll get to it, you know. So, uh, yeah, just a simple phone call and it happened. So for me, Carbon Stories, uh, it was actually a lyric in one of my favorite artists' song. And when I heard him talk about it, uh, he was referring to how. Uh, each of us have this carbon story because carbon dates back for a very long time. And um, as we live our lives, we have these stories. And it was around the same time that I was thinking of starting a company. And I'm like, well, the media that we're making is similar to carbon in the fact that it gets posted to social. It's going to be out there for a very long time. And also it was available on all social media. Um, so <laughs> it was perfect. Like we could get carbon stories on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Who's the artist and song? Um, uh, Michael Gunger. And the song is I Am Mountain. Yeah, definitely got to look them up. They're the only band that I know every word to every song um, for. They actually just had their last um, tour in Holland a few months ago. But they're really good. Definitely check them out. But, uh, yeah, the, the name for Carbon Stories just ended up fitting, too. I knew that I definitely wanted it to be something that was bigger than just myself. Um, there are definitely some, like, studios and even, like, just processes where it can be, you know, Eric Lachey. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to this studio or this place to get that Eric Lachey touch. But uh, for Carbon Stories, and I have other businesses that are definitely like, yeah, you're hiring Eric Lachey for this. But for Carbon Stories, it's their process that they're getting. It's a culture that they're getting. It's an um, energy that we bring to a project. It's the brand. It's way larger than myself. Um, so it, it, it worked out perfect. And, yeah, the fact that it was available also worked. So. Well, 20-some years ago, uh, I knew I wanted the word impact in our name because we didn't – people don't just – spend money on promotional items just to give it away. It has to have some kind of impact and positive in impact on the environment, a positive impact reflection of your brand. And impact promotions was already taken, so the first name was promotional impact, but that's six syllables long. And uh, it wasn't, since, since Herman Miller was, we have, we've had a preferred supplier contract with them for uh, 19 years now, and they're a true leader in sustainability in our, in our area. So we became schooled on sustainability very, very soon, and it became a, an important niche, unique selling proposition. We became experts in doing what was right by the environment to the extent that you know, we, we had front page in the Grand Rapids Business Journal years ago. We helped launch Graham, the first ever lead certified museum on the globe. Well. We, 
then I started Green Gifts with a Z, J-F-T-Z, because there was a .com. And back, it was long enough ago that, you know, it, you'd rather have a .com than anything else. So as time went on, Green Gifts just rolled off the tongue. I mean, we'd have clients, we'd walk in at, at Amway, they're like, the Green Gifts girls are here. It just rolls off the tongue better <laughs> than promotional impact. So, you know, it, really the truth be told, when you're small, you are the brand person that reaches out and shakes the hand and makes a deal that's the brand not really the logo or the name which I do think it's important and I probably could have done a better job but ultimately like you're you got to make decisions you got to make so many decisions you just can't like labor over it or otherwise you'll just get paralyzed and not make anything when you started your business what are one or two things that you did that worked to build the business and give you a return well for me, I've always, I've never worried because I'm like, if I'm shooting videos um, or shooting photos or designing something and posting about it, like, there's always going to be more projects. Um, and, and, and then even to go back to what Chris talked about earlier, where he's like, if you're doing good work, other people are going to know about it. So um, I've kind of just always stuck to that. Like, we, the doors, the opportunity will open up as long as we're continuing to redefine like our process to provide value for who our clients are and actually like meaning that too. Uh, it's something we're still continuing to even develop. Sometimes it is just a piece of content that's updating somebody and it doesn't have like a task that they have to do after that, but we still have to figure out how to make sure that's updating people the way it should. So just like, I don't know what business it is, but consistently doing whatever that is, you'll get better at it and also share it. There, it's very important in my opinion also because that's what we do. But sharing your, your journey and your process, I posted even about the fact that we were coming to speak here today. You did a post the second the panel's launched. Like sharing you know, on social media, like people will see it. And if your social media reflects what you're doing, they'll know to go to you for that, for whatever it is. Even if it's like you know the best about plastics on the bottom of chairs, like they're going to come to you and say like, hey, I see you know what plastic works better on carpet. Like should I be using that? You know, the, the best entrepreneurs that I know have not spent a lot of time trying to analyze how they're going to go to market. They just go to market. Um, if you sit around and try to have something perfect before you actually put it in front of somebody, you're never going to put it in front of somebody. Um, so kind of flying by the seat of your pan a little bit. You know, you know what you know what you're doing. You've got a gut feeling that there's a product or a service or something that you're offering, and it's going to provide value. And then it's perfecting it along the way or improving it along the way. Continuous optimization. Um, because there's never going to be a point where you say, it's exactly how I want it. Never. Um, so being able to say, I've got something strong. I know I can sell this. And as we sell, we're going to learn, and it's going to get better. That's, I mean, there really is no way to analyze up front because you have no idea what you're jumping into. Yeah, I was going to say, um, for example, Subway came out in the 60s when the only fast food restaurants that existed were hamburgers. And they came out and had a very unique niche. And just so you know, they were five years in and had 30 stores, and they still weren't profitable. You mentioned return. You know, so I think it is important to make sure you're getting a return. We were profitable pretty much within our first year and then just continued to uh, get better. But, you know, to John's point, basically you – I've had this approach, you know, you know the term ready, aim, fire. I've always looked at it as ready, fire, adjust your aim because. Uh, she has all kinds of great one-liners today. I'm like <laughs> writing them down. I'm, I've been around the block for a while, but uh, the, I've seen people that are trying to, st oh, I, I've got a blog and I'm, I got a business idea and they're, they're trademarking things and they're, you know, they're doing, they're covering everything with legal and no one even knows that they have a business yet. And that's an example of, I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, good luck ever getting it off the ground. You know, you know get out there and do good work. And, and then people you know, are stealing ideas. Then worry about legal. I mean, just, just get going and, and adjust your aim as you go. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the biggest waste of time that I've spent since I've been a junior of college until now has been writing business plans. <laughs> I, I wish we had some professors, maybe, I'm sorry if we do, but it's a, it's a great exercise in college to think through the markets, to do your research, right? But to waste that time to put to an actual plan, I've written 
five business plans in college, 50 to 100 pages each, almost 500 plus pages of research and content, Grand Apps does not have a plan. And it's the most successful company I've ever built, ever, right? So uh, also looking at the return of a business, you have two. You have product and you have service, right? So now the product, he could speak on a product side, right? Because he raised money and he got capital, so you have a burn rate. What's the return? What can you get? Well, go to market, figure it out, right? And then adjust as you go. Now, if you have a service-based business, well, what's your return? Your overhead should be low. Now it's going to be based on the skill and the service you're offering. And do you have talent? And can you get profitable enough to pay yourself, right, as the startup? So, the, so I would look at those two things, right? I wouldn't waste time writing a business plan. And the, the biggest thing that I think, uh, what I'm putting my investor hat on right now, the, the reasons that I don't invest in some companies is when people come to me and they go, well, the, the, the market is 14 billion people. And if we can capture one half of the one market of a this and this and this and that, okay, great, right? But like, how are you doing it, you know? So, so that's, I guess, a piece of advice. Hopefully that answers your question, uh, you know. You know, on the, on the business plan side, that's, that's really funny that you say that. We had to put together a business plan. When you're raising capital, you have to put together a business plan. Nobody read it. Right. It was about 100 pages long, and they all flipped to the financials, which were, I don't know, we rolled the dice on what those financials looked like. You know, you just you, <laughs> you, you paint the picture that you want to paint, and that you hope to hit it, but you really have no idea. All right, I saw a hand up here. One last question. We're starting to run over, so... How do you go about drafting a business plan and finding business partners or employees that complement your skill set or your team? Yeah, uh, right now I have, uh, I think, 13 business partners in, in multiple businesses, um, six for that, four, four service, two investments, but they're still businesses. And for me, they're an investment because I don't daily actively manage them, but it makes a return in their asset, right? Um, for sure. I, we're having this conversation. To find a business partner, somebody complimentary to the team, I will not have a business partner or somebody who owns equity in one of my companies unless they give me a massive amount of money and it could uh, leverage it or if they're daily actively working in the business, right? Um, but, but for us, I always try to find those people who can complement what I'm good at. I've been doing it for eight years now, so I, I know some of my assets. I don't try to go learn the other things, right? I want to be in the know, but... Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, finding those people who can do that. I am actually weirdly, it might seem like, yeah, flying by the seat of my pants. I am operationally, uh, I would say gifted. I can go into a department and I could just sit in on a few meetings and then process in my head how we could optimize and make that better and then put those standards and those uh, procedures in place too. I hate doing it. I don't like doing it, but I have to, right? So by necessity, but um, yeah, you got you to find the right people, right? And it, it takes time. For me, I don't have any business partners at all uh, for Carbon, so I've had to do both. Um, I am the kind of person who does like a plan just because it helps me work through all the different variables. I like to look at potential problems and then address them before they can come up to where we don't ever have to run into them. Of course, there's still some that happen, but um, for me, uh, the first plan for Carbon is not, I mean, I feel like it was maybe 20% of what we do now. Um, but I did a year after starting the company redo the business plan. It was only 12 pages though. Um, but still like then realized I wanted a handbook to where it is on paper and it's able to be read, even though I don't read really as much. Like I'm not going to go read uh, a handbook about somebody saying that this might be better, you know, for me to try. I can't use a good example, but I'm not even that type of person. But for me, I know that it helps me at least get my idea out when I have it on paper and I can see it. And then it's also able to be shared. And then of course I communicate that as well from there. So when the business plan was finished, I like said, Hey, this is where we're at right now. And here's the plan. Um, but I do plan on revamping that again, once we end up continuing to develop. But so I personally have to like do both. I project manage and then I also work on the projects. Um, so it happens when I'm working on the business and then also in the business. So there's some projects that I'm having to communicate with the client and then actually shoot and edit and do both for. Um, and then when it comes to the, the company side, like, yeah, but I do get to the same point where I'm like, okay, this plan is nothing without me going to go do it. So I'll be, all right, let me finish this. This is done for now. Now let's like actually put that into action. Yeah, not hundreds of pages, not hundreds. Yeah, to, you know, to your point about the plan, the plan is, is absolutely critical. Uh, the point we we're making, I think, on the startup point is that you can put together as much of a detailed plan as you'd like, but the reality is, is you're not going to have that plan 
uh, three months, six months, a year in, it's going to have to optimize. Um, in terms of rounding out your team, it's important to understand your own weaknesses. Um, I, for one, am not very detail-oriented, so I focus on hiring people that are very focused on detail. Um, so it, it, being able to be self-aware and hiring complementary people is going to be important. Plans are different than processes, and it's critical to have that person to uh, stay on top of developing the right process and making sure it's working right. And back to failures or whatever, we have a, you know, a goal of 100% accuracy on time at all times. And whenever we run into a stumbling block, you know, we say, why did this happen? How could we have prevented it? Let's work in a procedure that prevents this from ever happening again. And so I have somebody who's been with me 15 years, and I call, I tell her she can never leave because she's my historian because she knows so much. But we've since um, onboarded a cloud-based system, and you know, we, we still have some manual procedures that the cloud, the cloud system can't even handle our, like, all the procedures we put in to prevent errors. And then I, I have to give kudos to my husband. We've been married 26 years working side-by-side side through all of this, and you know, that's a lot of people say they couldn't work with their spouse. So his his strengths are my weaknesses. My weaknesses are his strengths. Uh, and our daughter now works in our business. She's here and a member of AMA today. So uh, She's also now mortified. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So anyways, I mean, success to me wouldn't be success if, if it meant, um, you know, not, not keeping my marriage, not making it for the kids part where I needed to spend it with. All right, well, we are just about 10 after 1, so I want to thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for staying. What a great conversation. I think we could go on for days. Again, follow along the hashtag AMAWM, and we will see you all back here May 14th for storytelling. Think like a journalist and get the five key elements of effective brand stories. Thank you so much. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative. Be bold. Set your marketing in motion. <laughs>